You're listening to The Middle, the show about the Australia-China connection. We're bringing greater balance and broad expertise to all aspects of the Australia-China relationship. Hello and welcome. You're listening to The Middle, the show about Australia's relationship with China. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Aurora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name is Peter Frey and my co-host is Wanning's son and our producer today is the wonderful Caitlin McHugh. Wanning and I come to you from the University of Technology, Sydney. The Middle is inspired by the simple desire to shed more light than heat on Australia-China relations. To do that, every week we explore one aspect of the relationship with two subject area experts. And if you'd like to catch up with previous episodes in either English or Mandarin, please go to themiddleau.com. You can even see what we look like, if that takes your fancy. So, Wanning, perhaps you can tell us about what uh, we're going to talk about this week. Yes, sure, Peter. Um, You know, a key issue in Australia-China relationship is security and intelligence. So the China influence debate is is increasingly increasingly conducted in the context of a possible threat that China poses to Australia's sovereignty in intelligence, defense, and national security. So uh, there's a wide range of issues Mm -hmm. here, uh, such as cybersecurity, espionage from China, to business-related intelligence. So there is a lot of heat surrounding these very, very difficult issues. In the studio today, we have Richard McGregor, who is an Australian journalist and writer, and is currently a senior research fellow at the Lowy Institute. A few weeks ago, Richard McGregor wrote a very interesting assessment of Australia's intelligence agency and in, uh, intelligence work. And it was published in Sydney Morning Herald, and it was called We Need Five Eyes Network But Oversight. We've also noticed that Professor Cheng Hong has played an increasingly uh, central role in representing the voice from China. Um, professor Chen is a professor in China's East Normal University in Shanghai. He's also the director of Chinese Association of Australian Studies uh, in China. So Professor Chen's engagement um, with the China influence debate is widely sought by China's most popular paper, such as the Global Times, as well as extensively quoted by Australian's media. Thanks, Wanning. And so both both our wonderful guests today have written extensively on a wide range of issues related to the China debate and Australian-China relations. But we're having them here today to talk mostly about issues related to security and intelligence. We'll start with uh, you, Professor Chen. Uh, in a recent interview with the AFR, you criticised some Australian media and think tanks for labelling China as a quote-unquote key suspect in cyber security attacks. Why are you critical and what's wrong with their positions? Yes, I think actually in the past several years, actually, China has been repeatedly, you know, being attacked, you know, as a kind of like a security Mm -hmm. threat in some media outlets, think tanks, and also government figures even. Uh, So China is uh, being perceived and even described as a threat, potential, latent, or even actual. Mm -hmm. And uh, in a number of cases, China has been singled out uh, for you know uh, some kind of uh, you know criticism, you know no one knows on what evidential you know grounds does China deserve such a privilege. So uh, are you, uh, are you uh, suggesting? Sorry to interrupt, mm-hmm. but are you suggesting there's no basis for mm-hmm. that those for belabeling no, no, China no. a key suspect? I 
serious don't think actually such a kind of demonization of China is constructive to the bilateral relations. You know, you know, the United States describes China as America's rival, which has been interpreted in China, the United States, or elsewhere as a euphemism for enemy. But, uh, you know, China is for Australia, not an enemy, not uh, as, uh, as of any threat. It's, uh, China is Australia's biggest trade partner, comprehensive strategic partner, um, mutually beneficial and friendly terms. So no conflict of interest with Australia. And uh, China never expects Australia to assume such a hostility towards China. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we might throw this to Richard, actually, same question. This, this kind of words that are banded around key suspect, those sorts of words. Justified or not? Well, I don't know whether I'll take the words on. I mean, there's the mm. word threat. That's a pretty serious word in international relations. There's the word key suspect. I don't know whether anybody's used that. If we stick to cyber and just to cyber, I think the Australian government in the past five years has tried to build up their cyber capabilities. Uh, In doing so, when there's attacks on um, public or private uh, bodies in Australia, and there's been some pretty serious ones, uh, obviously the Defence Department, uh, the Meteorological Agency, Mm -hmm. uh, the Australian National University and the like, they sometimes name the uh, alleged perpetrator they sometimes don't. And I think it's hard to know exactly why they do that. Sometimes it's difficult to confirm who it was. And I think during that time, uh, Australia, and I'm just talking about cyber, Mm -hmm. has named three countries, Russia, North Korea, and China. I think maybe China once or twice. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think, though, they've ever singled out China, unless you think being singled out is one of three countries, Uh, on this issue. But there's no doubt this is what other countries do um, to get inside your systems, to gain an advantage. It's the the new weapon of modern uh, statecraft, let alone warfare. Um, And I think we all have to um, uh, get used to it. This is going to be a bigger problem. More countries will be named. I guess I would say from the Chinese perspective, Western countries, particularly America, often name or attribute an attack to a different country, mm-hmm. China really does. And I'm, I'd be interested to know why China doesn't do that. That's an interesting question. Maybe just for one second, Professor Chen, is there then a, a reason why China doesn't name another country? Because as Richard said, and as we've been talking about, Western nations don't seem to have such reluctance. I think there's no point to make enemies, you know, in the various cases. You know, I think, you know, some or some the, the nature of the attack. I, I think it largely depends upon the nature of the attack, of, of the attacks. When the nature of attack, for example, is to, for example, uh, Snowden and uh, various other, you know, you know, exposures of the situations. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, pointing finger pointing about, uh, you know, a particular country, eavesdropping another country's leaders. You know, the telephone tel- telephone conversation or even some kind of kind of. Uh, uh, you know, communication or negotiation. That actually, I think, is quite malicious and 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 really, you know, worth some kind of noticing. But you know, in case of China's, you know, situation, you know, China not making any issue of any situation like that. Now, Richard, can I come back to you? Um, uh, let's actually focus the story, the article you, you wrote about five eyes, because I think it's one of the few pieces that I have seen that actually go beyond and behind the issue of the security and the intelligence and tell us something about how these bodies work. Um, so maybe if just for, for the general public who don't know what they are, or can you tell us briefly what the five eyes 
are and uh, what's Australia's role in it? Well, basically, the Five Eyes refers to five countries, the US, uh, Canada, the UK, Australia and New Zealand. And basically, over the post-war period, they've evolved a intelligence partnership, intelligence sharing arrangement, whereas they share intelligence with each, a- each other and, most importantly, promise not to spy on each other. Mm-hmm. And so it's a remarkable arrangement which has lasted for about 70 years. Uh, in some ways, that they divide up the world. This is not a secret anymore. You know, Australia looks at Southeast Asia, yeah. particularly Indonesia. And, and so Five Eyes has always kind of been there. Mm-hmm. And the point of my article was twofold. First of all, to... In the case of Australia, we've had massive increases in intelligence budgets, but no increase in oversight, Mm. uh, which I think is wrong. Um, I think the intelligence agencies all want to be like the US, but then the US actually has genuine oversight. Uh, And I guess the second but lesser part of the article was about the Five Eyes and China. If you read the Chinese press, the Global Times, they say the Five Eyes is ganging up on China. And it may be that it is a coordinating mechanism uh, to find ways to uh, handle China. And, of course, that's um, we're seeing that at the moment with the Huawei case. Mm-hmm. So are you saying that uh, as far as effectively managing our anxiety about China's concerned, it would have been better if the network had been sort of laid low? And we, I mean, given that there is a sort of level of anxiety and discussing this, or is this a good thing? Well, I think it's fine for it to be out there. It kind of is out there these days. One sure. of the problems I had with the intelligence agencies is they've got a very, uh, as a journalist, I love reading about this, but if you're inside the intelligence agency, do you really want to have a high profile in the political debate? It's not what you're meant to be doing. And ministers in particular, be in particular, not necessarily on China, have been citing intelligence publicly in ways oh. they've never done before. And I, you know, then you start to have the politicization of intelligence. That's one thing. On China in particular, uh, I think it probably has, Five Eyes has become a coordinating mechanism. Yeah. Uh, and from those countries' perspective, it, it might be a good use of it, actually. Um, you know, states are entitled to use what, uh, what um, uh, uh, capabilities they have. Uh, so it's very interesting to look at the Five Eyes from that, from from a Chinese from, perspective, as it were. Yeah. So yeah. Just going back to one other point in your piece in the um, City Morning Herald, was the uh, what you just said actually the need for greater oversight. How do you envisage that? Well, I think the oversight we get now is by very closed parliamentary committee. Mm-hmm. The two major parties refuse to have anybody from the minor parties, the Greens or Independents, on it. That's kind of duopoly. Uh, The Americans, we can all criticise big, bad America, but if you look at the US, the congressional oversight of intelligence can be very aggressive. Mm. People are called to account in public. They have very rigorous committees which look at them, um, and uh, people say they're snowed by the intelligence committees, but they're not all the time. So I think I'm not saying we adopt an American system, but I'm saying we need more scrutiny. And we need to have a a bigger public proper debate. Yes, Mm. Now, Professor Cheng Hong, now I'd like to follow up yes, Peter's yes. question about um, what he said about anti-China anxiety. Right? Mm. 
Because when the Australian journalist Glenda Corporal interview you regarding a mm-hmm. number of issues such as Huawei, Huang Xiaomo, mm-hmm. and concerns about uh, mm-hmm. WeChat influencing Australian election, you are you use very strong words uh, in response to that and calling Australia's anti-China <coughs> hysteria. What do you see is the problem with how this issue was handled? I think there has been such a barrage of attacks against China, accusing China of uh, being such a kind of like threat to Australia's national security and then even sovereignty. So, but what did China do? Nothing at all to substantiate such accusations. As I just uh, said, you know, there has never been a single case to incriminate China of any illegal wrongdoing in terms of threatening Australia's security, integrity or sovereignty. So like Clive Hamilton's book, if you read carefully, for example, you see only baseless and speculative conjectures and conspiracy so I really, you know, would be calling such kind of uh, uh, thinking uh, as a kind of like a Cold War mentality and antagonism, and that is not favorable or constructive. You know, the Huawei case, I think, is an excellent example. There has never been a, a case, you know, in Australia or elsewhere in the world to prove the Huawei of impl- implanting a backdoor leak for any, you know, third party to access client information to spy on on behalf of uh, any agency or infringe upon anyone's you know, privacy. So the keyword has always been could be, Huawei could be, Huawei could be. Mm. So I, uh, uh, well, Malcolm Turnbull, for example, in his recent interview mm. in uh, London said the reason of the embargo was uh, for, for Australia to impose this embargo on Huawei was that the five other countries had made no technological progress in 5G technology. So Australia's barring Huawei is actually to unfairly suppress Huawei's te- technological competitiveness using actually, you know, uh, the coalition of the f- so-called five-by uh, uh, countries. Oh, sorry, I just wanted to cut to the chase then here. Mm-hmm. I mean, are you saying then that for political, strategic, economic reasons, uh, people are briefed, as it were, that or na- you know, China is named as a threat by what? By whom? Where does this all come from? You, I mean, you've made the point a few times, which fair enough to make it, that there's not very little evidence of this, and yet it has to come from somewhere and it has to be motivated by something. So maybe you could talk to us a bit about that. We don't know. We seriously don't know. You know, you know, you know what is actually, you know, China feels very much, you know, disappointed, you know, you know because of this very close and constructive relationship, bi- uh, bilateral relationship in trade, in, in culture and education, communication mm-hmm. between the two countries. And all of a sudden, actually, Australia uh, has been, you know, you know, assuming such a kind of a hostility mm-hmm. okay. towards China. All right, Richard, uh, you might yeah. shed some light on this. I think. Well, look, it's true we've had a big debate on China and Australia. Sometimes it goes overboard. There's many different points of view, <clears throat> people who are critical of the government, people who support the government. Just on a couple of points that uh, Professor Chen made, China bans many uh, uh, companies from China in the electronic space or media space. There's a long list of companies which are banned. Um, Facebook, Google, Twitter, they're all kept out by one means or another. Many sorts of companies that China would not allow into the heart of its own telecommunications network as well because it's American equipment. Maybe they're right to be... Uh, are suspicious and they have every right to take a sovereign decision. So I don't really think China has the moral high ground when it comes to an issue like Huawei. 
because other countries have the right to take a sovereign decision as well. So if it's unfair to ban Huawei, is it unfair to keep out Facebook or Twitter or Google or whatever? So that's on the one point. The second point is, very quickly, I think, yes, China and Australia uh, have are struggling a little bit. The relationship has stabilised. The trade relationship um, is excellent. But it's true that the the Chinese narrative is China good, Australia bad, Australia changed, China didn't. And I think China's changed quite a bit. It's mm, mm. bigger, more powerful. Uh, that's its right. It has more interests. Fair enough. But we have to adjust to that. And that's the adjustment process you see happening in the debate. Mm, that's, a, that's a great point. And just before we leave that point, I just want to go back to you, Professor Chen, in relation to that first point that Richard made. And it's a fair point, isn't it? You know, Huawei stopped from doing business in Australia, but then the list of the companies that can't do business in China is considerably longer. I'm just intrigued, though, as to why, in your words, Google, Facebook, et al. Mm-hmm. are not allowed to do business in uh, China. I think, actually, in history, China has been worried about uh, uh, such uh, uh, sources of fake news and also instigation can really be threatening uh, the local, you know, Chinese. Uh, well, in particular, uh, in the context of the Arab, uh, the uh, the Arab Spring, uh, during which time actually the uh, Facebook has been, you know, had been, you know, uh, used as a way to spread rumors and fake news. So actually, that has been actually all kind of, you know. Uh, 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 motivations for China to in, you know, to, to assume uh, what uh, we have been calling as the, the digital sovereignty in, uh, in the country. But indeed, China is opening up. China is uh, making changes, and China is uh, 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 will be you know adapting mm-hmm. to okay. the international you know situation you know further. Yeah, Richard um, and Rob, you know former. Trade Minister complained on Radio National uh, a while ago that uh, there was little evidence for security concerns as far as China was concerned. And he also said that he sat at many security meetings and he didn't actually learn anything more from these meetings than he learned from media reports. Now, I took his comments as a a twofold kind of complaint. The first is that uh, there is a lack of evidence uh, provided by the security. The second is that the media, on the other hand, has been giving plenty of space to the security concerns, despite the lack of evidence. So you've been a journalist for a long time. So do you think media tend to give undue space to security and intelligence commentators? Uh, good question, actually. Um, you know, intelligence, by definition, in theory, is secret. And so if mm. a journalist gets hold on something secret... Then you they, were implying that in your article. Then you, get, you? then you get overly excited by it and you can place too much uh, stress on it. I might say in the case of Andrew Robb, he was at these briefings and he said he found out a little, but I think his colleagues seem to have found out a lot more, so they had a very different view from him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I would say about the Australia-China debate that there's no doubt that you know, you know, you know, particularly Barnaby Joyce, the statements he made, I think, were really ridiculous. Malcolm Turnbull, in some of his rhetoric, went too far. But even people who disagreed with Malcolm Turnbull were highly critical of him, like Bob Carr, didn't disagree with the end point. So, in other words, I was on a panel with Bob Carr just last week in Adelaide, and he was saying, I support the foreign interference laws. Mm-hmm. He just didn't like the way the debate was handled. 
Um, so we have the laws now. I think things have cooled down a little bit. Mm. Um, we have to face the fact, you know, the world is changing in Australia. We're going to have to have a relationship with China which accommodates tension because there mm. will be tension. That's a fair point. And I think it's interesting that Bob came to that point because it's often a question of rhetoric, isn't it? Language used. It can be a question of language used, but to look at it the other way, you can't pass major legislation like this without having a debate in a democracy. You can't have the government wake up one morning and say, by the way, this is a problem, here's the law. You know, they barely got the law through anyway. Um, and I certainly had concerns about the law and the way they expanded the definition of espionage mm. and the like. But I still think, you know, it's this is this debate was there to be had and mm. in our messy, ugly Australian way, we had it. Um, just sticking with you, Richard, you know, in your piece, you sort the intelligence agencies into three categories, those who collect, those who assess, and those who make policies. And then you go on to suggest that that distinction is disappearing. And as a result of this, intelligence collectors have more say, more influence. So can you maybe cite a few examples how that's playing out or explain how that's playing out and what ramifications does it have when we're talking about our management of intelligence and security in relation to China? I think the the, the, the three processes you talked about, <clears throat> um, connect, uh, collection, analysis, then uh, policy, what used to be quite separate. I mean, no doubt they got mixed up a little bit. Um, ASIO is the classic example, I think, where ASIO was a simply would collect and analyse intelligence but wouldn't make policy. Mm -hmm. uh, but ASIO might have a certain view these days and that eventually sort of becomes policy. And I think in the security meetings in the rooms, more than there used to be, you have all the intelligence agencies represented individually mm -hmm. rather than having one person in there who synthesises their views. So this really is a product not of China, it's a product of 9-11. Yep. That's when the big increase in spending happened yeah. uh, and I think China's been added on top of that so the intelligence bureaucracies um, have become much more powerful than they were say you know 20 years ago now um, Professor Chen let, let me ask you yeah. a, a hypothetical question if you were to advise mm -hmm. the Chinese government on its foreign policies towards um, Australia what would you say mm -hmm. based on the problems that you've just commented on what would you say it's a very <laughs> Interesting question. You know, uh, I think actually we, uh, uh, we do have been, you know, making suggestions and advices to, you know, to the governments through our, you know, opinion pieces and also at different conferences. You know, what we have been arguing is actually to be, you know, communicating uh, with uh, the Australian side more and to know what uh, the other side is really thinking about. Mm -hmm. I think actually we, uh, either side should be only assuming a kind of like one-sided way of thinking and to know why the other side having, you know, such concerns. Some of such, you know, concerns are simply, you know, maybe malicious, uh, of malicious intent, but some other concerns are simply, you know, can be originating from misunderstanding and misinterpretation and they can be mis misled uh, by some sources. So that's actually exactly what we need to be doing, what we have been trying to advise not only the Chinese government, but also we've been arguing, you know, and also trying to advise the Australian side about, you know, to be uh, more open-minded. Okay. Like Kevin Rudd, when mm. he was in uh, Beijing, he was saying that he wants to be the Zheng Yu, the true friend uh -huh. to China. And we also want to be Zheng Yu to Australia, to, <laughs> to, to, uh, to be the true friend okay. of Australia. Do you think that, uh, mm. in a sense, 
to one way of interpreting this sort of language, this debate, is that it's a good thing. It shows that the relationship between Australia and China is changing, evolving, growing up, and that in any such relationship, mm-hmm. there are going to be these sorts of um, tensions, which is a different sort of relationship than simply looking at Australia, say, as a farm. Yeah, I think, as you said, as also Richard said, that the China is now you know, changing, the world is changing. We now have, uh, you know, China as the second largest economy. We have got uh, uh, Donald Trump in the United States. Uh, the world is really, you know, changing a lot. So I think, uh, you know, the various relations between China and Australia also need to adapt to uh, to the changes. But one most important thing is is uh, that uh, the relationship, you know, has been mutually beneficial, and China's economic development cannot could not have been, you know, happening without Australia's collaboration and support. And Australia's economy actually has been, you know, growing in parallel with China's growth. So all these are actually very important to the benefits of, of the both sides. If any miscalculation or any misfire on either side, you know, uh, 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 well, that can happen. You know, that will really be bringing, you know, uh, disasters to uh, uh, to. To, to the you know the well-being of the bilateral relations, you don't need actually a government to tell the business people uh, and uh, tourists and students not to go to Australia, not to invest in Australia. It's impossible. Business people, they are business people. They they only care about business. If they think Australia is a favorable destination of good in, uh, in business environments, they will come. If they think actually well, the atmosphere or the environment, the climate is not good. They will simply, you know, to be hesitant of making a business decision. Even students, their parents will worry about the safety and the future of their kids in Australia. So, so I think actually, what we need to do is to make actually the environment to be more proactive and most more constructive, rather than finger pointing constantly. And that's what's no good, I think. So, uh, Richard, sort of friends with benefits, but with an edge kind of angle. Yeah, well, I was pleased. I was pleased to hear Professor Hong there talk about the mutually advantageous trade relationship. I, I don't like people who say we're reliant on China or China is reliant on Australia. Nor I think we're very interdependent. Everybody wins from that, not just one side. Um, but I also think you know we ought, we should you know, if, if if Professor Hong ever invited me to talk to his students, <laughs> there's, um, an, there's an invite you have to make. <laughs> I would certainly say that, you know, I think there's only one Chinese businessman who uh, has been sort of kept out of the country. There's not lots and lots. Um, And I think in terms of, I think we had one silly headline in the newspaper one day about Chinese students being spies. So there's been a there's been a quite a diversity of views expressed on China in Australia. It's not there's not one sort of single demonization. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I mean that the point you make, Richard, is a very fair point because the, and one um, sensational headline, one careless subbing editor, ed, ed, editor or whatever, can create this sort of fuel this atmosphere. So is this then a question, Professor uh, Hong, about keeping perspective? So, you know, instead of firing, you know, bullets at each other, we should be trying to dampen down and aim towards the middle. Am I being just, you know, stupidly optimistic here at this point? Uh, I definitely, you know, think actually we need to be more constructive. And uh, I don't think actually China has ever, you know, made the first fire, made the first shot for Australia. Uh, uh, what China has been doing is has, has been responding to attacks from media outlets, from you know, you know, you know, some academics from Australia, but uh, all in all, I think actually the uh, uh, both sides, on both sides, academics and uh, uh, 
the people and governments, you know, we hope actually the virus relations will improve. Uh, it has been, you know, very good to see actually the uh, uh, the diplomatic you know, deadlock has been, you know, defrosting, has been, you know, you know, warming up. That is very, very good. Um, final question to you then, Richard. What does a constructive relationship look like in the security space? What is it, what is that actually? What are the bits in there? Well, to be honest, a lot of the a lot of that depends on how the U.S. and China get on. Um, and if the U.S. and China can work out a modus vivendi, then Australia can manage that. Mm-hmm. If the U.S. and China move towards greater conflict, that makes it more difficult for us because we are a U.S. ally, and it makes, but frankly, makes it difficult for the entire Asia or Indo-Pacific. So I think we're all watching the U.S. and China very closely. Mm-hmm. Who in particular are we watching in terms? Because we're not really looking at Trump, are we, in that respect? Well, we, are, we have to look at Trump, I'm afraid. Um, Trump has destabilized China in some respects. I think it's, it's calmed down a little now. We have to see what happens with this trade deal. The bigger issue may be, of course, let's assume Trump isn't re-elected and we don't know what will happen there. Mm-hmm. It's likely that U.S. policy will be more like in the future more like Trump's policy than it was like past policy. So there's a degree of competition and conflict baked into it, um, and they have to work out where to draw the lines. That's an interesting point. Trump, no matter what happens to him politically, has moved the dial. I, I think so, yes. And do you agree with that, Professor? Yeah, I also think that that's, uh, the uh, attitude towards China and the approach towards China has uh, not been partisan, but actually bipartisan. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a really, you know, almost a kind of like, you know, both parties in the United States have been, you know, assuming the same attitudes and approaches towards China. So uh, I think China is uh, facing this uh, international situation, which we need to, you know, be prepared for challenges from the United States, from this international environment. Okay. All right. Well, on that point, we're going to leave it there. Um, I'd like to thank you, Professor Chen Hong, for your time today from Shanghai. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you also to Richard McGregor from the Lowy Institute. Thank you. Uh, great pleasure to have you. Uh, that is all that we have time for from The Middle this week. Uh, you can find previous episodes online at themiddleau.com, wherever you get your podcasts. Until next week, it's goodbye from me, Peter Frey. And it's goodbye from me, Wan Yingsang. 